This week on Three Questions by Corey Kareem. If you could go back in time and say one thing, one thing, to a younger version of yourself, what would it be? If someone rejects you, it's not a personal problem. Mm. It's, it's timing. Mm. Welcome back, guys. Welcome back to another episode of Three Questions by Corey Kareem, the podcast where we sit down with some amazing people who are doing some amazing things. And that's right. You guessed it. We asked them three questions, sometimes four, sometimes five. I know, I know, I know. But rather than talk about people's wins or successes, we talk about their failures, more specifically, the lessons that they learn from those individual experiences. So, with that being said, my guest today goes by the name of Alicia Janelle, who is the founder and CEO of the Janelle Group, which is an award-winning women and minority-led experiential event production company dedicated to executing authentic, diverse, and industry-leading digital and in-person brand experiences. Some of the brands that Janelle and her company have planned events for include the Wall Street Journal, the Globe and Mail. Cadillac Fairview, and the Daniels Corporation, to name a few. So with that being said, Alicia Janelle, welcome to the podcast. Wow. Thank you, Corey. I appreciate that lovely introduction. I haven't heard that one in a while, so that was refreshing. You know, that's a common thing I hear when uh, folks come on the podcast. It kind of feels, it's like this weird surreal experience hearing their resume rhymed off to them from someone else it's like mm -hmm. on one hand they're like are they talking about me <laughs> and then on the other hand they're like yeah that's right i did all that like, you right? know what i mean yeah. so it's like a combination uh, of the two and so for all my listeners um uh, my audience members that are tuning in right now if you can do me one solid favor if you could just click that follow button just click that follow button if you're on apple Podcasts or spotify Make sure you follow your boy. Appreciate it. So, uh, Alicia, Janelle, oh, two first names. You know what they say about people with two first names? <laughs> like you can never trust a person with two first names. Um, but no, in all seriousness, um, I know I just gave you a bit of a, a lightweight intro, um, reading off a bit of your bio there. But for my audience that's being introduced to you for the first time, why don't you tell them a little bit more about who you are and what you do and where you got your inspiration from? Yeah, absolutely. So fun fact, Janelle is actually my middle name. Mm. So uh, I, I really just liked the ring to my first and last uh, middle name, I should say. So that's that's where the Alicia Janelle comes uh, from. <laughs> so you're like you're like me. That's yes. what I do. So okay. Corey Kareem. <laughs> Kareem is my middle name. And same exact same reason as you. I like the ring of my first, the sound of a, my first and middle name. And actually, I've been low key thinking about dropping my last name. Okay. Um, I haven't made that decision yet, but like it's something I've been noodling on for a couple of years. One because of again, I like the ring of just Corey Kareem, and two, mm -hmm. it's got you a know, vibe to it. My last name is Roberts, which obviously would be a slave name because I'm mm -hmm. black and. There's kind of whole that whole kind of dialogue I play with. And I know Kareem is more of a Middle Eastern Arabic kind of name, which is closer mm -hmm. to the continent. So uh, anyways, that's a conversation I've been having with myself for quite some time. But anyways, back to you, back to you. So, well, you know what? It's interesting you said that because so my my last name is Hanson and mm. I've been married for seven years now. So I actually hyphenated it mm -hmm. to Hanson Addo. Okay. And I created my company name prior to being married. And so I knew that I could likely change mm -hmm. my last name or adjust it somehow. And I just didn't know what that would have been. So right. I played it safe and went with the first name and middle name to kind mm -hmm. of just, I felt like, okay, that is consistent. That's not going to change for sure. Mm -hmm. So that's part of my story. But aside from, of course, loving the sound of Alicia Janelle, just, it just flows. So yeah, it definitely has a nice ring to it, but yes. Um, first and middle name continue, please. 
<laughs> yes. So, um, I, you know, you, you did a great job at explaining the history and my experience. And so my, you know, how I like to explain myself is I'm a human to human connector. I like bringing people together, truly have a passion for creating spaces where people can just let their hair down, connect, have real organic, you know, conversations and, and make changes. So mm-hmm. that's also what inspires me to do what I do is, is the people and, and creating those spaces and seeing the most, you know, um, experienced, wealthy, you know, people from the upper echelon being able to be in spaces where they truly can let their hair down too, from, right. you know, people who are more green in the industry. It's, it's a really special thing when you can find things that unify everyone of all walks of life. So that's who I am and, and what inspires me. That's awesome. I love that. So let's get into this. Um, let's get down to the nitty gritty as they often say. So Tell me about your most difficult moment you've experienced thus far in your event planning business. Ultimately, I would like to know how you got through it and what you learned from that experience. So for me, I think the most difficult moment I had was when I realized that I needed allies to Mm. advocate for me. I am a, you know, I, I grew up with a Caribbean background. My parents are Jamaican and, you Shout know, all my Jamaicans. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, they're very independent people really try not to rely on anyone. So I was always grown up and in an environment where my parents inspired me to be self-sufficient, to create my own way. And when I was more earlier on in the industry, I started working with a financial institution Mm -hmm. and I took a job as a executive assistant. And my reason for doing that was, you know, I thought that it would put me in a space where I could connect with different people and then somehow showcase my event experience with them. And so, you know, some opportunities would come up like volunteering for their social committee and so forth. And I would do that for a number of years. I think it was about five years or so. And in while I was doing that, I was also running my business. And what sparked me even creating a business was I couldn't find opportunities. So I wanted to make opportunities. So here I am kind of working full time and trying to be seen in the corporate event space in conjunction with running my business and trying to create my own opportunities and still trying to kind of prove myself and and actually get the opportunities I wanted, which was working and actually having a full-time corporate event management position or getting those type of clients. So I would, you know, Five years into the role, I would start applying for jobs that had event manager titles and I would never get a call. And then, you know, I would try to reach out to clients and I wouldn't hear back. And it was just really, really discouraging. One day, I actually finally did get a call from a job that I applied to within the financial institution. And it was a, hey, we're not going to interview you, but we see that, you know, We've seen your name come up a few times now on these applications. Mm-hmm. So there is a committee within the institution of event managers that they wanted to invite me to. And the person mm-hmm. on the other side of the phone was someone who was a very prominent event manager within the bank who was also a Caucasian woman. Mm-hmm. And so that was the first kind of stepping stone for me to be able to get into a space where potential colleagues that would be able to look at me and and see my experience would actually be able to give me an opportunity. And it was through, you know, a Caucasian woman. So fast forward, um, attending and being a part of that committee, I was able to then eventually get a job. And that truly was because I had advocates that, you know, unfortunately didn't look like me, but were in those positions that um, allowed me to actually be looked at, not just for what I look like, but you know, to really say, hey, this girl, she she knows what she's doing. Like, not only does she, you know, manage full time and get her work done, she also does this on the side and mm-hmm. she does it because she enjoys it and she works hard. So, you know, I was always setting myself up to make sure that when an opportunity came, I was ready. Mm-hmm. And when that happened, where finally a door was opened through an ally, 
as much as I was grateful to finally be able to get what I wanted, I was discouraged because I realized I actually like need advocates. And because Mm -hmm. of the space that I'm in, there are very, very like a handful of people that look like me. I was most of the time, the only black woman in the room, if not, you know, one of two or three, if I was lucky in a room of, you know, a hundred. So it was so discouraging for me. And, and, when I found myself in those spaces, I wouldn't wear my hair curly the way it is today. I would, you know, slick it back in a ponytail or I'd wear it straight. And I just didn't really feel like I was, I could fully be myself because I was right. so focused on trying to prove to people my work and not to just kind of be ignorant. And so I would say that was probably the most difficult moment for me. And, and how I got through that was once I had that realization, mm-hmm. I try to refocus my mind to just building genuine relationships with people mm-hmm. and taking that frustration that I, I had and just using it as a tool to propel myself forward, to put myself in these uncomfortable situations so that I could be, um, you know, for future generation, that, that black woman that they see in a room where they're now not, they're now stepping into that room as a, you know, Gen Z, for example, and not just seeing one or two, they're seeing a plethora because I pushed myself through that. And so I think my ultimate learning was you're going to be uncomfortable. It's okay to be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it's, it's not a good feeling when you feel like you're the only one and that no one understands you. You have to prove yourself and work triple the amount of time just to get into a door where someone can easily just have it open for them. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I, I see the ROI in our community from a Black perspective, from a female perspective as well, to just keep pushing through. So yeah, so that was kind of, I would say, my most difficult moment and experience. Right. And so it's something that I can relate to in in the sense of being one of few or the only one in in the room. So a question to noodle on that uh, for a second here. When you talk about being a challenging moment, how much of it, or maybe you don't have the answer to, um, how much of it do you believe was it something that they, as in the others in the room, were imposing on you versus perhaps your mind imposing it on yourself? That's a great question. Because the reason why I ask is, you know, I've had this conversation many times when we talk about things like imposter syndrome, and I know imposter syndrome can happen irrespective of, you know, race, creed, color, all the above. Um, And it came up because, you know, sometimes we can, you know, get in our own head. And I think Mm -hmm. Jay Shetty said something, and I'm probably going to butcher this, but he says, you are not who you think you are. You are who they think that you think that you think you are. Like you're basically mm-hmm. thinking how that person thinks of you, which could or could not be true. But based on, you know, past experiences that have happened to others that we've seen on media and television and past experiences that have happened to our ancestors, mm-hmm. we internalize that. And we carry that forward. So we're almost kind of expecting it. Mm -hmm. And it may or may not be the case. So that's why I was asking the question. You know what? I I feel like it's, for me, a mix of both. I think Mm -hmm. there's the the awareness that it does exist, that, you know, um, people can react just based on what you look like. Mm-hmm. What I do find, though, is when I, you know, I step into a room and if I'm the only person of color, I notice it right away if there's a few of us. Right. But I instantly change my mind frame to be yourself. Don't even look at, you know, all of that and just connect with people. And the moment mm-hmm. I kind of step outside of my head and and likely what does exist, but and, and may not always in right. every scenario, it changes who I am and how I approach people. And so I'm more confident. I like, you know, I'm ready to just step to and have a great conversation with anyone that is willing to connect. And I'm, you know, able to, you know, if someone isn't as open to have a conversation, that's okay. And not kind of being reactive or taking that personally right? and really just owning what is in my, you know, 
control. So I I can see totally to your point, like a difference when it's also not something you're really using. You're not like using it as a laser focus as part of, you know, your experience. Once Mm -hmm. the moment that you like, for me, at least the moment that I keep that in my head, I give up and then everything else is just going to fail from there. Right. So Mm -hmm. I think there's something in both, like it being existing, but not letting it overcome you and how you handle certain situations right and it's kind of one of those things where it's you know in in some cases in some situations it's easier said than done but there's something i learned recently from one of my recent podcast guests shout out to x he said something because i asked him the question i asked him was you know what's the secret to being black and successful in corporate well like what's the cheat code because you know Mm -hmm. he's an executive He's done, he's doing pretty well for himself. And he said to me, he's like, Corey, the jig is already up. They already know you're black, right? From day (laughs) one, right? That's not a secret. And you got, to a certain extent, you got hired to be who you are. So lean into being your authentic self. And there's, there's, there's levels to that. I'm not going to say, you know, like we all have a code irrespective of, of color. Like, you know, how you talk to your friends might not how mm-hmm. you, you talk to your colleagues, so on and so forth. But then he said something that was mind blowing to me. And he said, focus on being the only folks. So let, let me say that again. He said, realize that you are the only you in the room. Forget being the only black woman, the only black guy. I am, in your case, I am the only Alicia Janelle in the room. Mm -hmm. There's only one me. And that kind of paradigm shift has helped me since learning that kind of perspective. There's only one Corey Kareem in this room, irrespective of of color. And that for me, that kind of like positive self-talk has worked to kind of combat, let's just call it noise, Mm -hmm. although it could be very real. Um, has helped me to 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 deal in those particular scenarios. It, to your point, it is the positive self talk because it's it's right. a mind frame shift that is necessary if you want to, you know, connect with people and just kind of ignore the. There's always going to be that person or that feeling that comes up when whenever you're in a space like that where you you stand mm. out no matter what race you are. Right? It, there's times where I step into a room and I'm working with a you know the audiovisual company and primarily they're men, right? So mm. there's always going to be some a space that you may not be as comfortable in. Right. But ultimately once you you've shifted your mind frame to really focus on positivity. And I love that um you know message you've shared of I am the only Alicia Janelle. You are the only core you know Corey Kareem. Yeah. Um it changes things for sure. Yeah. And I, I've had my experience. So I'm in the advertising business and advertising business in general these days, it's like 70% women. And so I've I've been in a, a room where they're talking about like hair products and I don't have any hair except for a beard. And so it's like, I can't really relate, relate. to some of these comedies. So I've, I've had it on the other end. Um, and what's funny, you talk about like, you know, being the one of few or the only person in the room. And sometimes we have like these social events. And I remember one time, I, I swear, if I was to develop a, a comedy skit, I would use this <laughs> real life situation that happened to me. It's not that it happened to me, but it's just an experience that I had. And so, you know, we're doing kind of these kind of fun social activities where they're like, hey, uh, everyone's sending their baby pictures and we're going to try and guess who it is. Now, (laughs) I think you know where I'm going with this, right? So I'm like, come on, guys. Yeah. Everybody's like, oh, no, I think that could be Dean. No, come on. You know it's not Dean. (laughs) Yeah. Come on. I know Dean looks kind of Middle Eastern, but you know, yeah, he's not yeah. that dark. Come yeah, on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? I'm like, guys, I don't think I could participate in this one. I yeah. don't think it really makes sense for me. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. So anyways, that I feel like if I was to do like a Dave Chappelle type skit, <laughs> I would, I would, I'd bring that real yeah. life yeah. Uh, scenario up. Um, let's talk about difficult clients mm-hmm. uh, for a minute. You know, I'm going to make the assumption that You've had at least one or two uh, mm-hmm. based on your line of business, your line of work. So with that in mind, tell me about your most difficult client, what happened, and you know, how did you work through it? 
So my, I think most difficult client is a type of a person, not necessarily one individual or one kind of client. And by that, I mean, it's a person or an entity that does not understand my value or the value that the company brings. Mm. And you know, oftentimes when people think of event planning, there's so many different things that can come in one's head, right? If you're not in the industry, some people may think you're a party planner and you just put pretty things together and, or, you know, J-Lo and the wedding planner movie and everything just looks pretty and you just show up and, you know, everything's great. Um, And so for people who are not as educated uh, or don't do the grunt work to to really understand which partner they're hiring and what they're hiring for, even understand the need, sometimes I end up with and have ended up with clients who just don't understand the value. And so Mm -hmm. in having to work with people like that, and and one in particular I can think of, every instance in where I would present an idea or provide insider feedback, it was just met with adversity and, you know, not thought through adversity. An example of that was, um, you know, a client of ours, their budget was really uh, slim and that their, Mm -hmm. what they wanted versus what they could afford did not align. Right. And so they would ask, well, hey, you know, can you take a look at these, let's say, virtual platforms, for example, uh, to produce a virtual event? So my team would, you know, take that away. We understand the essence of the actual event that they're looking for. We do our research and we'd come back and, and we'd share kind of our top three recommendations based off our experience. And, you know, automatically the client came back and was like, Actually, you know, I, I great three options you just shared, but I I, I prefer you know Zoom for example. Mm. Well, had you told us Zoom at the beginning and that that was your preference and you wanted to lean towards that, maybe that would have helped us look for you know maybe we wouldn't even have you know spent the time looking for other platforms. We could have spent the time that we did researching in other areas of the budget to really help you get your ROI. Or, you know, if Zoom wasn't the platform that you wanted to use, but you liked it, that knowing that information at the onset would have been helpful so that we could look for platforms that were really similar, right? Mm -hmm. And so they would almost set us up for failure because they didn't provide any context or they were trying to constantly prove that our ROI just wasn't there and not ours personally, but just the need for having an event team support the event to begin with. And so, you know, most of the time, the work that we do, we are working with either a a committee or a set of stakeholders and you have some that you got to win over. And it's so rewarding when you do kind of towards the end or at some point. And then there's some, you know, that are advocates throughout. And in this particular instance, that individual that kind of gave us a, or put us on a, a wild goose chase, wasn't an advocate. And we, you know, wasn't also a person we could win over. Mm. So um, how we handled or and how I handled that situation was I kind of had to have a come to Jesus moment with the rest of the committee to say, you know, we need to sit down and truly understand the needs of the business. We need to be looked at as partners and allies as we work together. Otherwise, there is n- we can't help you, right? And we will spend more time. A lot of the work that we do is service-based. So it's time, right, that we invest. And, you know, if they don't understand the ROI, we can't help them. And then we're either going to just go over budget based on doing excess work. So um, I would say that's been our most difficult type of client, my most difficult type of person to work with. Right. And um, working through it has been just being a, being a voice, not accepting it, you know, mm. being aware that there, these characters do exist and not being afraid to, to just speak to them and directly like have a heart to heart. Right. And so having a heart to heart, being aware, not, you know, being afraid to kind of broach those conversations outside of those few things you just mentioned, are there any like specific hacks that you use to deal with, you know, different clients or to manage different clients? Yeah. So at the beginning of a event journey, I work with the actual client team to develop um, really roles and responsibilities. So Mm -hmm. I get them to do a bit of homework and I say, okay, 
we have a vision of of how we'll work together, but we need to understand, does that vision align with yours? What truly are you expecting out of the situation? It's like any relationship, right? It's truly understanding at the beginning, what are, what am I expecting and what are you expecting? So I really try to lay that that groundwork at the beginning mm-hmm. and then developing kind of KPI. So that's key performance indicators. Right. So that helps us understand how are you going to determine our success? Right. right. And let's, let's talk about that at the beginning and not at the end so that mm-hmm. we're not like, well, Hey, I, but I thought the art, you know, you were going to judge us based off of the event survey that sent after the event or the smiles and people having a great time while they're on site. And so having those conversations at the beginning, that has been my hack to help make sure that we kind of stay on the same page throughout the the whole experience. Love it. Love it. <laughs> uh, have those difficult conversations up front always. I think that's a uh, life advice as well. I think that's, <laughs> that is a uh, multi-purpose. Um, so moving on, um, <laughs> I love this one. Um, so I'm sure that you know, we all have friends who, you know, they plan a great party, they plan a great, a great girls night out event or what have you. And they sometimes feel that they could be a great event planner because they do so well at these, these smaller events. Mm-hmm. So my question is for you, one, is that a good sign? Is that a good indicator that someone has what it takes to be a great event planner? And two, what does someone need to do and have to actually be a great event planner? Mm, um, yeah, it's so interesting. I get this all the time, actually. People who are like, they just plan their their wedding and then now they want to create, mm. you know, this, this business, which um, is definitely a business of 90% of the things are much more difficult than you think. And then there's the 10% that makes its way on social media and looks pretty and looks great. And I would say, you know, first the person that is loves planning social events and, you know, girls night out and all of that fun stuff, it does show that they love bringing people together mm-hmm. because you have to, in order to plan that's being considerate of the experience, right. And um, you have to care in order to, to do that. So I think that's important. And that is a bit of a good sign to see that maybe it'd be something the person would be good at in a more professional setting. And then also, I think with being an event planner, like there's a, you, you need to want to have control over things. And um, most of the time we're like type A people. So I find someone who does like planning events is a person that likes to have a sense of control. So mm-hmm. it's like a little quality that I think could be something that turns into something great and, and in a professional setting. I love that. And I, I never really thought about it, but it makes sense that a type A personality would be a great, personality trait to have as an event planner that actually makes sense i'm actually thinking about people i know that actually organize events and they kind of i can kind of see that being consistent um so if someone was serious about becoming an event planner how does someone get started in this industry is there like traditional schooling is it you know just kind of you know getting your beat wet by volunteering like how does what does that process look like in terms of getting started? So I think for one, it's, there's so many different ways. You you do not need to go through a formal education to become mm-hmm. an event manager or planner. However, I think education definitely is important. And so the great thing about this industry is there's so many different resources that are available. There's an organization called BizBash that they showcase all of the events across like North America and even global. Right. Uh, there are organizations you can join like MPI and ILEA that you can connect with other people within the industry. So at least, you know, that could um, help you maybe get internship opportunities as well. If you don't want to go the traditional route, I did actually go to like college. I went to Seneca college. I took Mm -hmm. their corporate media and production uh, program, which is like, it's kind of, um, underneath the communication arts world, right. if you will, right. that was so helpful to me, to be honest. And and the reason was, is that program gave me a breadth of knowledge of everything creative. So I did a bit of like media writing, broadcast, 
corporate event planning, website development. I got my hands Mm -hmm. in a lot of different things. And so if you are to go the more traditional kind of education route of university or college, I would recommend something that would allow you to touch different components of an event and not just logistics, Mm -hmm. right? Or because it it can turn into so many different things. You could be a planner who does weddings. You could do corporate events. You could do social. You could maybe mm-hmm. just end up being a designer and focus on, you know, bringing a brand to life. There's so many opportunities um, through that. So there's different routes. And then I would say the last thing someone may, you know, should consider is leveraging their personal life. Like my mm-hmm. very, very first serious event that I planned was my grandparents 50th wedding anniversary and bless their hearts they trusted me to actually do it I don't even remember how old I was I was like 19 or 20 at the time and they were like yeah no we trust you like you Mm. you got this you're going to school for it you know and their trust in me really really helped me to just like feel so empowered to create an experience that would make them feel celebrated. And so, and when you start in in working in that environment where you're supporting the people around you and you're doing personal events, you keep wanting to chase that feeling of like making people happy and Mm -hmm. actually caring about the work that you do. And then that would, you know, push you to actually do work like that, even if it's not working for family and friends. And now, you know, into more professional settings, I chase opportunities that are meaningful to me. You know, I love working with not-for-profits, working with organizations that aren't just trying to throw a party and parties are great. Don't get me wrong. There's a need for them. Um, but are trying to bring awareness to uh, the underrepresented communities and so forth. And I strive for those type of events. So starting in a place where it's passion and in a a place that you care really is important when you're in the early stages of of planning. Right. I think that's such sound advice. And I've heard some consistency throughout our conversation thus far, you know, the word meaningful um, being important to you. So I get, I get the drift that, you know, it's not just about taking on a gig because it has a nice check to it. Although obviously money is nice and right <laughs> money, but there's, there's gotta be, it's gotta be meaningful mm-hmm. uh, to you. And I always find that I feel like that's like the happy balance to obviously do meaningful work and to be compensated fairly uh, for it. Because I started to have those kind of thoughts earlier on in my career where I, when I actually needed money, I've turned mm-hmm. down some great opportunities because I was like, no, this is not what I want. And I know I'm going to be miserable mm-hmm. if I take this, even though they're going to compensate me fairly well. The downside is when you say no, you kind of have to grind it out until that yes. right opportunity uh, comes comes along. But I, I love the advice you get, that you just get. Lean into something that you're naturally, organically passionate about. Mm-hmm. I think that helps when you absolutely love what you're doing, it sounds like you love mm-hmm. what you do. Yeah. Um, now you alluded to this before. You, you, I think you used the percentage breakdown of 90, 10, right? People only see 10% of what actually happens on social media. So now that we all live in this social media world where all we see is highlights, you know, everyone's <laughs> highlight real, right? no, one, no one's struggling, right? Everyone's just living their, right, best, living life. their best life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and in your line of business, that, those highlights might look like being next to someone who's famous or important mm-hmm. in a fancy venue, having fancy meals. So with that being said, what really happens behind closed doors? <laughs> if I told <laughs> you, Corey, I'd have to kill you after. I don't know. <laughs> in other words, Alicia, um, tell us about the stuff people don't see. Like, what does it really take to plan a major event? Mm-hmm. So yes, I'm going to stick with that, that 90, 10, mm-hmm. um, and that 90% of the work that we do is not sexy. And the 10% that you see on social media is great. And it, it, that's also what pushes me to do the work that I do and that it's rewarding, right. And, and, and seeing that people are enjoying themselves and, and they are also celebrating the work that's being done. That feels great. That 90% 
is sleepless nights. Um, recently, like over the past year and a bit, I've been working on more global clients. And, and that means, you know, working with people who are in Europe. As a result of that, living in North America, uh, mm-hmm. time zones are a thing. And so, you know, many times I would be up at 5 a.m. in the morning, 6 a.m. in the morning regularly. Now that like my actual biological clock has shifted from now waking up at like 7 a.m. just naturally because I'm I've had to pivot and adjusted um, or adjust my schedule. And even though I'm up at 5 a.m., I'm not going to bed at nine. I'm going to bed at 10 or 11 because. We also have people in Canada that actually need to do the work that the client needs. So it's, you know, constant work and a constant balance. So, you know, I think if I were to put it in a a simple way, Mm -hmm. the work that we do is strategic. It's very selfless. It is truly giving everything that you can to be able to produce an experience that has a deadline. It's not a project that I can say, hey, I'm I'm just not going to make the deadline. You know, let's push it out. Right. That date is going to happen. That event is going to happen. So everything that you have to do up to that is includes sacrifice. Um, and that often has spilled into my personal life, not spending as much time, you know, with my husband and with my family. And those are things that are important to me to mm-hmm. today. And, and as I get older and older, I realize <laughs> that there truly is a need to have a little bit more balance. So it is also trying to find how to constantly, you know, harmonize personal and work knowing that a lot of the work we do requires so much time, requires so much of you um, and me as an individual. So, Mm. yeah. (laughs) Right. I think, I think we, when we originally spoke, we had this small conversation about balance and um, it's a tough one. Um, It's a very, very tough one. Um, And I'm not sure if having equal balance is actually achievable. I'm in the belief or I am of the belief that your life will always somewhat be out of balance. But as long mm-hmm. as you you make the moments that you have, let's say, let's just say right now your time is 70% work, 30% family. Right. Obviously, that's out of balance. But mm-hmm. if you make the 30% count, let's so so let's just say when you're 30%. You go on vacation to Hawaii for seven days mm-hmm. with your husband, right? Those are seven days, but like you can do some mm-hmm. really crazy, meaningful things in those seven days that could last. Those moments can last a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's like it's really hard to get that fifty-fifty, and I am I, I start to kind of, you know, really noodle on the fact of having pure balance, as we like to describe it, is actually achievable, but it's more like things Mm -hmm. will kind of ebb and flow. Like there are certain periods in your business where you might have more family time than business time and then vice versa. Yes. And that's why I I like to use the term. And someone shared it with me the other day, but using the term harmony rather than balance, Mm -hmm. because often we think of balance, you think of the weight scale and, Mm -hmm. you know, one side has to suffer. And I think to your point, if you approach it more of there's ebbs and flows and and that's natural with life, with work and everything that we do, um, just finding a, a way to to mesh the things together that are important to you and the work that you need to get done. Um, harmony is, I, I think, the word that I'm trying to, to live through with the work mm, that I'm doing. I like that harmony. I'm going to use that too. Harmony, yeah. <laughs> harmony, harmony. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's talk about clients. Um, <laughs> In your line of business, how does one find them and and are certain clients more valuable than others? So I it's hard to find clients when you don't know who your client is. Mm. So um for me, it took me years to actually truly understand who my client is. And by that I mean I would get, you know, people from very different walks of life and very different jobs or careers or like cultures, environments, et cetera, et cetera, reaching out to me to do events. And I just couldn't figure out like the who. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, over time I was, I I would do research or as clients come in, I'd ask them, Hey, what, what did you need? Or how did you um, 
find me? You know, what are you truly looking for? And what, how did I stand out? And, you know, they would explain that to me and that helped me really narrow down who my client was like actually is to this day. So, you know, first it's finding who they are. That's the most important thing. And finding the actual clients that you want. Like, do you want to work in fashion? Do you want to work with PR marketing, you know, people? And then it's, you know, putting yourself in their shoes to understand who they are, what their needs are, what events they're going to go to, you know, what things do they like? What do they like to talk Mm -hmm. about? And doing that research, just like if you're, you know, if you're an actor playing a role of, um, you know, a, a historical person, you need to put yourself in their shoes and research, 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 research right. um, to find where they are. So my clientele tends to be from like the PR marketing world ish. So LinkedIn is like my happy place for mm. those people. I have a lot of, you know, experience in the industry. I've been in it for over 10 years. So a lot of the work that I do get is word of mouth. But if I am looking for that new clientele or just to tap into different industries, I at least know, okay, what is the job title of the person that I need to connect with or, you know, reach out to, introduce myself to? So that's, I would say, how you would find them. Right. And then I think to your question about clients being more valuable, I think it it truly boils down to what is valuable to you. Mm. For me, what I find valuable in a client is somebody who understands my ROI and also wants to have fun, right? And mm. so that creates a bit of a demographic and a, you know, a certain type of person and so forth. And then I can start to put my head in their shoes and find who they are. But I, it, for me, it's really important for people who want to try something different, try something fresh, aren't that partner that says, I just want to do what we did last year. Like I'm okay with that. Or, you know, we just need you to do this, 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 and this, and don't actually look at myself and our team as a a partnership rather than, Hey, we just need you to just get this work done. And so I think, you know, to find a certain client more valuable, it's really based on your values and who you want to work with. Right. And, you know, understanding that thought process as someone's in the early stages of their, you know, event manager, event planning career, how do they know which side of the business they should be catering to? Are there like, are there certain things that, Hey, I should be more in, you know, corporate event planning or trade shows or whatever other categories there are. Is there, is, or is maybe there isn't a way, but I'm asking, is there a way for someone to kind of say, yeah, this is for me? Like, are there certain indicators or characteristics that are better suited for more, uh, for one type of event versus the other, if that makes sense to you? Yeah, that makes sense. I would say, it's a, it's a little tricky. I, I always recommend somebody who's more green to just try everything, like work mm. in pharma, do conferences, do the weddings, do the social events, like try them all, especially when you're in the early stages and just soak up all the information because there's a lot of learnings you can take. You know, I was, um, you know, while I was working at the financial institution, I was doing a lot of corporate work and I got into their budgets and I was able to apply a lot of the the work that I did there into the social events. So mm-hmm. it, when you're working on a corporate event, oftentimes strategic thinking is, is so integral. Mm-hmm. You need it to help a business understand the ROI for the event, to create an experience for the attendees, to develop a theme so that the content that is developed is, is all connecting together and makes mm-hmm. sense from an attendee perspective. And so a lot of those things may not necessarily connect with social events. Like if you're doing, I don't know, a holiday party, they don't really care about ROI or measuring mm-hmm. that. It's it's a party. So they're mm-hmm. determining success by people being happy, right? And, right. and, and connecting. So, um, but, you know, when you approach it with a little bit more of a strategic lens that comes from that corporate experience, then you tend to put yourself in the shoes of the attendees and are just more thoughtful with how you you plan. So I think ultimately try everything. And through that, you'll see kind of what you love or what you're more interested in. For me, I found when I was doing wedding work, I just, it was really restricting for me creative wise. 
because, mm. you know, it's a social event. So whoever's paying for it, there's an emotional connection to the money being spent. And so they've got their vision and and you got to get on board or, or get out. Mm-hmm. Right. And so mm-hmm. that going through that experience, I was doing weddings for a few years and I still do a little bit here and there uh, because I love bringing people together. And, and that's a fun thing. Um, it's not my happy place because I don't get to be as creative. I don't get to, right. and sometimes I get really lucky and, and the clients that we do do weddings for are the ones that really do want to have fun and try something different and collaborate, but um, it's important to try them all. There's no way to gauge until you start getting really involved in, in the work and doing it. Right. Right. I love that. I love it. I love it. Um, All right. My last question before we get into some rapid fire questions Mm -hmm. really quickly here is um, what do you believe is the best lesson you learned from dealing and overcoming failure thus far? Mm. Uh, I believe that the, the best lesson for me that I've learned is the importance of resilience and perseverance. Mm. I think failure can be disheartening, can be discouraging and, you know, but with failure, it presents an opportunity for growth. It presents an opportunity for learning. And when you embrace failure as a stepping stone rather than a stumbling block, for me, I've discovered the power of resilience in bouncing back from those setbacks. Mm. Nothing so, like a good bounce back. I know, yeah. right? It feels good. You just dust off your shoulder and you're like, all right. On yeah. <laughs> and you know what? Um, when you bounce back, you learn a lot about yourself, and I, I've, I've, I've known this before, and I've also just came across it that you learn more from failing, if we can use that 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 term, that word, than you do from from winning. And so when you bounce back, I think that's like the ultimate win because now you're winning, but you gain so much knowledge because you had to go through a period of yeah. failure. So you you've really come out very much, you know, stronger, if you will. And I think it's all a matter of perspective, right? The failure thing, right? It, it depends on how you're defining what success looks like for you. Mm-hmm. I think one of the beautiful things about you know, the human experience is that there's multiple perspectives. Mm-hmm. And if you are you know, self-aware enough to be able to shift and adapt your perspective, you could realize I'm actually not failing at all. Mm-hmm. This is just a part of the process, right? Mm-hmm. If you're if you're kind of hip to that t- sort of thing, um, so let's get into some rapid fire questions really quickly. I got so, a question for you though. Before yeah, yeah, yeah. Do that, yeah go like, for it. Shoot, on shoot that, it. On that wins point, like, mm-hmm. do you find that you sit with that win, or do you just say you acknowledge it's a win and then you move on to the next? You know what? That's so crazy. You're asking that because I had like. So me and a bunch of guys, we had like a mastermind kind of get together, a bunch of men just talking about life and that. And that actually came up. And he, the guy who organized it, who actually owns the gym that I train in, he doesn't like to celebrate his wins. He hasn't even, he opened up his gym three years ago mm-hmm. and hasn't celebrated that. And he has, he has, I think, eight or nine employees, other trainers. Mm-hmm has his clients are all like high net worth clients Mm -hmm. and he hasn't celebrated that because he's like you know i I, i'm not where i want to be yet for me to celebrate that and i I get that perspective there's a healthy dose of not being complacent and i think that's Mm -hmm. what he's talking about but i don't think that's complacent i think it's healthy to acknowledge that you've 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 reached a certain level because at the end of the day what I've learned later in life is that you're only really competing against yourself. And it's a hard trap, especially with social media and all these tools. Mm -hmm. It's easy to get in the comparison trap and compare yourself to someone else. But here's the problem with social media. It doesn't give you context, or at least it's not great at giving you context. It's great at giving you snippets, headlines, whatever you want to call it. So you're looking at somebody else that maybe does the same thing as you, but you don't know that, you know, their mother was also an event planner right and gave her the game or give her a book of business or whatever the situation is you, mm-hmm. you just didn't know that right and so the other side to it 
is I think that, you know, when it comes to, you know, celebrating your wins and successes, it's really about, for me, I think it's discipline. And Mm -hmm. I think it's discipline in the sense that you have to be disciplined in your mind to know that you should start hanging around people Mm -hmm. that are where you want to be. Yeah. Because that will always humble you to want more. Mm -hmm. Right. Not in a way like, oh, I don't have shit. Yeah. That, Mm -hmm. but like, oh, I didn't know I can do that. Mm -hmm. You know, like in in one of these mastermind groups, I literally, this this happened like maybe two months ago. I was telling somebody what I do for a living, what I Mm -hmm. do for work. And he says, oh, then you would be great at raising equity or capital. Interesting. Yeah. He said, because he's like, your skill set is what people use to raise capital for certain projects. That's just the next level for you. And Mm -hmm. I never, I never thought of it about that. that, Mm -hmm. Right. Because I present and I I pitch for a living. Right. Um, And I never thought of it and looked at it that way. But had I not been in that group, in that room amongst that association, I never would have gotten that thought. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think. It takes discipline to always put yourself with guys that are, you know, on your level and always, mm-hmm. you know, leveling up because you're going to get these various different perspectives. So mm-hmm. um, I totally get the thing about not celebrating the wins, but I think it's important it's to, important too. Mm-hmm. yeah, to acknowledge your wins, but also leave opportunity or room mm-hmm. to, to to want more as well. Yeah. And, and acknowledging your win doesn't mean that you now think, you know, you're, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Perfection. And, you know, you, you can't continue to improve or you become delusional. I think there's, there's something in celebrating it. And, you know, that's part of the bounce back. It's part of the like, Hey, I got this. Like, you know, when you, you did my introduction earlier and um, mentioned the Globe and Mail, like the other day I was sitting down, I was thinking like, I did, you know, I produced a gala for the Globe and Mail. Like they're mm-hmm. pretty prominent in, in North America. And you got to do that sometimes because, you know, you have to be your biggest advocate. And sometimes absolutely. you need to have conversations with yourself to remind you who you are. So absolutely. Uh, yeah. and, and to the thing about being your biggest advocate, I used to kind of shy away from like posting stuff on LinkedIn because I didn't want to mm-hmm. come off as that guy. It's like, oh, people are like, oh, he's always posting stuff about himself but no you you have to yes you know market yourself you can't rely on other people to do it for you right so you have to be your biggest advocate as you just said and also i think more importantly and i said this to another gentleman at this mastermind meeting he was like you know no one knows that i'm a solid partner in two other businesses that are doing really well because I don't want people to hate on me and then people mm-hmm. start asking me for money and this and that mm-hmm. i was like i get that all valid reasons. I hear yeah. you. I get it. I'm not denying that. But I said the consequence of you doing that is there's some young kid that has aspirations right. of doing whatever those side businesses are that just needs some visualization. They just need to uh-huh. see someone. And you talked about this in the beginning of our conversation. You said, you know, unfortunately, you didn't see a lot of people that look like you. Yeah. Right. So the power of seeing someone that looks like you doing something that you're dreaming about, thinking about, makes it that much more real. So yeah. the downside of you kind of keeping that hush hush is that there you're not you're not really, you know, I don't mean this in a negative way, but you're not really helping the community as much as you could be helping them. Yes. Because yeah. after all, you know, for ninety five percent of ninety five percent of us, mm-hmm. seeing is believing. Yes. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> we digest that no, thought. Yeah, yeah, I am. <laughs> yeah. So let's get into these rapid fire questions really quick. My first one um for you here is if you could go back in time and say one thing, one thing to a younger version of yourself, what would it be? If someone rejects you, it's not a personal problem. Mm. It's it's timing. Mm. I was so like petrified of asking for support, asking for an introduction. I still have some fears around that, but you know, 
it definitely held me back being afraid to be told no or not right now. It held me back. And I always, you know, when I was told no, I took, I took it to heart and Mm. I didn't need to, (laughs) it's not a personal problem. And it's either a them thing or it's a timing thing. And, and either of those are okay. And so that, that is something I would absolutely have told myself. You know, I like that. Um, I read Pablo Coelho's book, or is it, no, Don Miguel Ruiz, he wrote The Four Agreements. And I think chapter three is don't take it personal. Mm-hmm. And I'm paraphrasing here in that chapter, he says 90% of the time, it's not about you. Mm-hmm. And what you just said just reminded me of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love that. My next rapid fire question here is, if you could only give one piece of advice to someone looking to get into the event planning space, what would that be? What would it be? It would be to look for a mentor. Mm. I have hired mentors. I have organically, you know, built them through the environments that I've in. And I have to tell you, like they hold their weight in gold, having someone who can, you know, really give you the, the playbook or, give you some advice and it doesn't even need to be from an event perspective. Like Mm. I think I have maybe one out of the eight mentors that I have, maybe one of them are in my industry. Right. And so for me, that is something that is so, so, so important, especially when you're early on is to get that extra support guidance and direction from people who have more experience, who know different things, who are in different rooms and can provide you with, with guidance and and help you to think outside of kind of what's in your head. Mentors are so important. Mentorship. I love it. Absolutely agree. Um, What is a favorite quote or mantra that you live by? Mm. Treat others the way you want to be treated. I love it. And I'll, you know, I I know that can be a little corny, but but yeah, People truly take away how you make them feel when they leave a room. And when you go out of your way to support someone, to make an introduction, to, you know, um, help them with something that you might seem very small, but for them is grandiose. And you wouldn't even know that in the moment. It, It is so, so important. Just being a good person and connecting with people. And it... For me, that's it's rewarding, but also to be able to to make someone feel valued and important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's like no dollar value that you can assign to that. And it's for me, I think definitely something that I try to live by. Yeah, very good advice. Hard to do at times. Yeah. <laughs> you know, be the person that you would want other people to 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 be to you, even though they might not be acting as a, as a good person mm-hmm. or they might just be going through something to still be that person irrespective of how they're behaving. Yes. Is, is, is the highest calling. Yes. <laughs> you know what and, I mean? And, and not I'm letting, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and not letting other people's behavior influence, like change who you feel you should be. That's, that's the highest level to me. And it's difficult. Like I, I'm an, you know, an empath. So I, mm-hmm, it's, you feel. it's second nature to me to give you what you give me. Right. right it's it's right. a constant effort. Like if, if I'm getting, you know, faced with somebody who's being a little, a little too much, like I naturally want to yeah. match that energy. And so that is why that resonates with me so much mm-hmm. is I have to make that extra effort to just be like, Oh, like their problem doesn't need to be my problem. And it right. doesn't impact me. I need right. that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a difficult thing to, to live by, but something that I try. Yeah, here, here's a quick hack I've, I've used and it might oh, help listen, you. I'm listening. <laughs> um, and again, easier said than done. Um, so I do this with like emails, client writes an aggressive email. Um, like you, I'm an empath. I definitely want to match that energy. <laughs> so I'll start writing exactly what I feel in that moment, but I won't, their name won't even be in the send. Mm-hmm. 
and I'll just get it off my chest. I'll mm-hmm. go do something else and I'll come back to it. And then I write something that's a lot more suitable. Let's just mm-hmm. use that word. But the question I always ask myself when I'm about to respond is, Corey, is what you're about to write in this particular scenario going to get you closer to your goal? And that is the question that I ask myself is what, or if you're going to, if you're having a conversation mm-hmm. and someone says something, you know, disrespectful or whatever it is that triggers you, you can ask yourself, is what I'm about to say going to get me closer to my goal, whatever that goal is. Mm-hmm. And that's like a way of checking myself. Yes. Yeah. Right. Cause then, you know, if it's not, then I need to just, you know, bite my tongue. And then, mm-hmm. and that's where you have to have like outlets. Like for me, yes. I picked up boxing for a little bit. You know, I started doing all these other activities. Like, so I have outlets to kind of deal with the the frustrations and, and stuff of, of yes. life. Yeah, you, Drake actually had some a similar advice to what I forget what interview he was doing, but they asked mm-hmm. him like, you know, what so many rappers will come up and and try to start beef, and mm-hmm. you know, his mom gave him the advice that before thinking to respond wait three days yeah the three-day rule yeah, right yeah now we don't always get the luxury of waiting three days but yeah. that you know thought process for me has been really helpful to you know push me not to be so reactive and to wait to your point like wait just even if i like that you actually write out how you feel right away that's kind mm-hmm. of interesting i haven't tried that, but I think that there's something in that that's cathartic of just getting out that frustration. One thousand percent. And even just writing it is a form of an outlet, in 1, addition 000%. to all the other things we do, like working out and so forth. So I actually really like that. I might might steal that. <laughs> from yeah. You. Yeah. No, borrow it, please. And the thing with that, the the Drake rule, um, it's it's also I think Mel Robbins had a book five minute rule or five five second rule or something like that. But anyways, there's science to support that if you're angry, upset, whatever that emotion is, if you just wait five minutes mm-hmm. before responding, again, easier said than done, totally mm-hmm. get it. You just wait five minutes. Mm-hmm. You will respond way differently than if you acted in then in the moment. Yeah. So yeah. It, it, it takes discipline to do that. Like, you know, some people got to leave the room, get a drink of water. You know what I mean? But if you just take that time to just like separate yourself, the way you respond will be completely different than if you just acted in the moment. Agreed. And another thing I like to think about is like, it's okay to feel an emotion. Mm-hmm. Like it's okay to be angry. And sometimes sit in that for a bit. Like if I'm, I'll get a client email and I'm just like, you didn't have to write me like that. And in my head and, you know, I'll stay frustrated for a little bit, but I have a time frame for that. Right. We're not going to be angry for 24 hours. We might just get at that emotion right. for 30 minutes and then, all right, it's, it's two o'clock move on. Right. And so right. I think it's like, allowing emotion where it makes sense and to like sit in it because it's okay to feel those feels and um but also having a bit of a boundary or a timeline so you don't get so deep into it where it it starts to affect your health your mental health everything that you you know you're doing right i love it now my last rapid fire question for you is what i have here when you are no longer here how would you like to be remembered? Such a deep question you're asking today. <laughs> <laughs> I want my obituary to say <laughs> she loved her family and put others ahead of her. And not that, you know, losing myself and who I am to please people, but to be that shoulder for people when they need and to genuinely just, just be there. Um, that is something I just want to, I want to be remembered for being a good person and being there for people when they needed it. Awesome. I love it. Well, Alicia, this has been an amazing conversation. We definitely gave birth to a lot of gems and I'm sure my listeners and my audience will get a lot out of this. So for the people that want to work with you, hire you, collaborate with you? What's the best way for them to to find you or reach you? 
everywhere. <laughs> just type in Alicia Janelle, but uh, on Instagram, my IG is I am Alicia Janelle. We also have the Janelle group. You can um, IG that as well. And then through LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, all of that is Alicia Janelle or the Janelle group. Amazing. Well, guys, as many of you know, I typically like to end each conversation by saying this. If you just want to impress people, Talk about your wins, your successes, your accolades, yada, 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 the shiny things you have in your house. But if you really want to have an impact on someone else's life, um, talk about your failures. Share your, your, your downturns, those tribulations, those rough moments in your life. That's how you really move the needle in someone else's life. So with that being said, Alicia and I are out. Peace and love. Until the next time.